Blog Talk Radio. Good morning. This is Howard Smith, and I'll be your host for today's program, New Business Paradigms, Conscious Commentary on Business and Society with Ronaldo Brutico. Ronaldo, as you all know, is the president of the World Business Academy. I'm a member of the board of directors of the Academy, as well as a vice president and wealth advisor with Morgan Stanley Wealth Management. For those who want more information about the Academy, you can always find us on the web at www.worldbusiness.org. You can also email us at uh, that address, worldbusiness.org, and we'd be happy to take your questions on this show or any other in the past. During today's program, Renal will be covering several broad topics uh, along with our lightning round. As always, we do include questions and comments we've received from our audience in past emails. Uh, and if you'd like, again, like to place a question for next week's show, uh, please email us, I'm sorry, email us at info at worldbusiness.org. One of the purposes of these monthly calls is to present you, our members and listeners, with concrete, actionable ideas that reflect the business practices of the World Business Academy. Today we're going to be focusing on, first, an interview with Frank Knapp. Frank is the co-founder, president, and CEO of the South Carolina Small Business Chamber of Commerce, as well as the co-chair of the American Sustainable Business Council. World Business Academy is a member of the American Sustainable Business Council, or the ASBC, as well as one of Ronaldo's uh, companies, Seven Oaks Ranch, which is an organic food maker. Our second topic is kind of be a grab bag pre-election uh, month run on the hydrogen economy. I'm sorry, hydrogen economy, election updates, insurance and casualty claims related to climate change, and a few other miscellaneous ideas. In our lightning round, Ronaldo is going to provide us with a series of quick insights and comments on various asset classes, such as bonds, equities, gold, and real estate. Uh, today's emphasis will be on gold, which is a frequent topic of ours, dividend stocks, and then real estate, both commercial and residential. During our financial literacy section of the show, Ronaldo and I will discuss briefly socially responsible investing, or SI investing, and we're going to go from there. Ronaldo, one of the purposes of these calls is, again, to present our members and our listeners with concrete, actionable ideas that reflect the World Business Academy's desire to bring socially conscious business practices to our members. Can you expand on this for our audience and explain exactly what this means or entails today? Thank, there. You very, thank you very much, Howard. Uh, the, uh, I think it's going to be a great show. I'm, I can't wait to get to our guest today, but uh, this is, it's clearly the most important thing that we all heard this morning. Um, uh, this, this show is going to be uh, focusing on a lot of key areas. One of them is going to be the um, uh, employment rate. As, as some of you know, we're pre-taping the show for the first time because I'm going to be in Europe at a conference, and so this particular show is going to be pre-recorded, and we're taping it on October, and the, the unemployment numbers just came out at 7.8%, uh, which is now a number lower than it was when President Obama took office. As you recall, there was 850,000 jobs lost the first month he took office. But we're going to be talking about the unemployment stats, um, and we're going to be talking about the, um, the 5.2 million jobs that have been created since the draft of the recession. We're going to be talking about how small business has come through this remarkably well, given the pressures that are against it and the forces that have been aligned against it. Uh, we're also going to talk a little bit about um, some interesting ways of observing the amount of distortion that's gone on in this political season. And uh, I, I just want to comment quickly on the facts of what people need to know in order to be informed 
no longer is something as simple as turning on the TV set, listening to a debate, and hoping that the two can't. Reality is they're not. Reality is that we need to do our own fact-checking because our lives, our economy, and I, would say, and I would argue the global economy is at stake, and at stake at a time when, because of climate change, we are particularly vulnerable on many levels. So I want to just come back to that all in our grab bag pre-election session. I'd like to set the table today just to let people know that I'm extremely pleased. If, for those of you who listen to the show regularly, you know we uh, predicted that the housing market would start rising. We're touching this later. Three months ago, we said we bottomed out. It's now rising. It's going to continue rising. We predicted that the, uh, the recovery would continue despite the lack of fiscal stimulus, which we all for. We think there's at least another $500 billion in fiscal stimulus that should have been spent. Paul Krugman's written about it. Joseph Stiglitz has written about it. I've talked about it endlessly on this program. And that $500 billion in infrastructure would be one of the best things we could do for the economy generally, but clearly it would be one of the best things that also would benefit small business, and we'll touch on that as well. So there's a whole variety of issues we'll touch on today, but the key one I wanted to mention is, you know, the, is as Thomas Jefferson said, the price of democracy is an informed we really need to be willing to look at what we see and hear and separate the buzz and the spin and the outright distortions and instead look at what's true, what's not, and where do our own best individual and collective interests lie. That, um, Howard, why don't you introduce our guest? Well, as we mentioned earlier, our guest today is going to be Frank Knapp. He is the president and CEO of the South Carolina Small Business Chamber of Commerce, but more importantly, he's also the co-chair of the American Sustainable Business Council. Uh, with that, um, Frank, why don't you take over? Well, thank you very much, uh, both of you, for allowing me to be on the show with you all today. Uh, and I am the president and CEO of the South Carolina Small Business Chamber of Commerce, and I'm also the vice chair of the American Sustainable Business Council. Uh, the ASBC is a organization that has over 50 partner organizations um, that represent over 150,000 small and medium-sized businesses across the country. Uh, as you can tell from the word sustainable in its name, uh, it is uh, a proponent uh, of a sustainable economy and that uh, businesses have to be concerned about the next generation and be concerned, so therefore they should be concerned about what, what's going on with the planet and also their, their, the people that work for them. Uh, and uh, profit planet and people then combine together to uh, to look at how do we develop a sustainable economy for our kids and our grandkids and, and their children. Frank, how many businesses now do you represent in South Carolina? We have upwards of 5,000 small businesses in South Carolina. Uh, and, uh, you know, we, we've been an advocacy organization since 2000 when I co-founded the organization. We are, our primary purpose is to make South Carolina a more small business-friendly state, uh, and, but we've also got involved in national issues also. Uh, a lot of that is through the American Sustainable Business Council. So, you know, we, we keep pretty active here with, with one goal, and that one goal is to do the right thing for small businesses. And that means we don't really pay attention to what big business interests are talking about. They have plenty of resources to take care of their own agenda. We have to be focused just on what's good for small businesses and not allow the big business interest to try to co-opt the name of small businesses so that they can propel their own agenda forward. But let me just let me just drill down on that a little bit, Frank, because first of all, I, I, I wanted people to focus on how many small businesses you're representing down in South Carolina. And if anybody has sustainability, as you noted in your opening statement, at the core of its, of its dose, it's small business. 
typically handed down from generation to generation, much more so than uh, the way we pass the management of large corporations on the Fortune 500. So small business is acutely aware of sustainability at the most fundamental level and has the most difficulty, I think, the least amount of social support in grinding out their daily living, whether the butcher, the baker, or the candlestick maker. And 97%, listeners, 97% of all the businesses in America have fewer than 50 employees. That's, that's the power of small business. But what Frank just alluded to, I wanted, I, I, and, and one of the things we do on this show, Frank, is we like to name names and we don't, we're not bashful. Uh, there's been a lot of talk about the National Federation of Independent Businesses, or the F- NFIB, which was started back in the 40s, as I recall, and has become a front group for Carl Rove. And I think that's a fair statement because Crossroads GPS has been funding the challenge NFIB made to the Obamacare law. And I found that absolutely outrageous that an organization would call itself a Federation of Independent Businesses is actually a front group for Carl Rove and Crossroads GPS and the Koch brothers. Could you just comment? First of all, do you think what I said is, is accurate or not? Well, it, it is accurate, of course. Uh, to, in, in the defense of the NFIB, when they say they're simply independent businesses, uh, I guess technically they are independent businesses. Uh, you know, the Koch brothers are independent businesses, and so they want to pour millions of dollars into the NFIB and, and help that pre, uh, small business pretender organization um, to go out and do things that are not in the best interest of small businesses. I guess they can get away with doing that, but it, but, it has but come wait, out. But even there, even there, Frank, hold up, because, you know, I saw what they spent, $2.7 million, on the appeal to Obamacare which they lost. Of that, literally half came from a law firm that the Koch brothers and Carl Rove maintain on retainer, and another $2 million, the, other, the balance of it came from Carl Rove, as I recall, uh, and the Koch brothers. No, so no who are they getting the money from? The, look, uh, a ton of their money uh, does not come from their members. Uh, there are big efforts that you see every day out there. Uh, when they commission studies, uh, they just commissioned this uh, Ernst & Young report uh, that uh, was used in the last uh, debate saying that uh, somehow if we allow the Bush tax cuts on the top uh, income brackets to, to revert to where they should be, that we're going to lose 700,000 jobs in this country. Well, that was a study funded by the NFIB and the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Those two organizations uh, work hand-in-glove. Uh, I often refer to the NFIB as the lapdog for the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. It is let me think, just stay right there for a second, because I, I want to connect some dots here for the listeners. And just so people know, the Chamber of Commerce itself is dominated by 30 companies. So when you hear that it represents 10,000 businesses around the United States, or tens of thousands, totally false. It really represents the interest of 30 very, very large companies. The NFIB represents even fewer. It's what I would call, as we used to say in the old communist days, it's a front group. <laughs> it's literally, you know, it's a, literally a front group for Carl Rowe. Crossroads GPS, the Koch brothers, and related interests. And when they published that study, I, I was outraged at that study that 700,000 lost jobs. If you want to talk about it, be my guest. But it was so outrageous because it's full of holes, it makes no sense, and in fact, it's a justification for trickle-down economics, which this academy has published endless articles on for many years now. There's no such thing as trickle-down. I think trickle-up works. Trickle-down is a complete hoax to keep the rest of us in servitude. But take any portion of that, Frank. What do you feel like you want to comment on? Well, you're absolutely right. I went and actually looked at the Ernst & Young study, and it is so, uh, it is so full of holes uh, in coming to their conclusion. It, it's, it's embarrassing. But they are doing the bidding of those who paid for, the, for these, uh, this report. They've combined all kinds of different other types of tax uh, increases in there. Uh, and, but, of course, they don't report that when they go on the stump and they say it's 700000 because you let the Bush tax cuts go away. They don't report those things. And, and, and primarily, most of what they look at uh, are businesses with well over 100 employees. 
Uh, and so they're not really looking at what you and I consider Main Street small businesses. They're looking at uh, big organizations uh, that are maybe formulated under S-Corps or LLCs, but those people aren't running the business. Those people are simply getting the, you know, the, their, their share when it comes tax time, but they're not running the business. And so uh, they, they play with the numbers uh, to mislead and, and, and misguide the American public. Trust me, they, there are very few small businesses I know in South Carolina, maybe, maybe different in other parts of the country, uh, who are bringing in $250,000 of income from that business. Uh, they, they, are just not that many of them. And to say that uh, most small businesses um, uh, that that uh, would be hurt with this tax cut, uh, excuse me, with this letting the taxes increase on the top uh, upper end, are going to impact these businesses that employ 50 percent of all of all of all workers is a joke. Uh, well, yeah, know. let's put the numbers to it. I mean, I gave a statistic a minute ago that 97 percent of all small businesses have uh, have 50 people or fewer employees. That's 97 percent of all businesses. Now, if you want to go up to $250,000 worth of income, and I want the listeners to think carefully. Remember, the price of, an, of, a, of a free democracy, Jeffersonian democracy, is an informed electorate. Okay, let's inform ourselves. Of the people who make $250,000 or more as passive income, ladies and gentlemen, not as salary, passive income, from a small business probably represents less than 1% of all the small businesses in America. And that's why they are the 1% of small businesses that match up with the 1% of earners. So the 1% really is across the board, 1% phenomenon. If you're making a half a million to a million dollars a year in a small business, you know what? You can afford to give back three extra percentage points. That's all we're talking about here. The Clinton rates were 39%. That's all it was. Instead of yeah, 36. Yeah, we, we, we look, most of us who, who run a small business understand one thing. We make our business decisions based upon the demand for our products or services. We don't take in consideration come April 15th what we're going to have to pay in taxes if we make uh, extra money and profit from our business. That is, we don't, we're not looking at that. We are looking right now, what's the demand? What do I have to do to meet that demand? If that means I need to hire people, then I need to hire people now. We'll let the taxes sort themselves out later. Yeah, and, let me ask you a quick question. Um, traditionally, small businesses, at least out here in California, tend to be the most conservative in terms of their political views as it relates to the economy, and and what you're telling us seems to be just very much the opposite. Um, how do you explain this sort of um, dislocation of thought? Well, what we find out in, in study after study of polling information of small business owners uh, is that when you ask them specific questions, uh, they will almost always come down on on the more progressive side, uh, regardless of what that is. Regulations, uh, anything, you name it, uh, healthcare. But when when you allow the big dollar uh, and the, you know the ones organizations that are well funded that are conservative organizations that simply don't want to have, have any uh, any resources available to the people in the small businesses, and they say and they're telling everybody, no, small businesses hate Obamacare. Uh, small businesses hate regulations. Uh, and they, they convey that to the t entire public and even to those small business owners, so it gets ingrained in their psyche so that on a generic question, they will answer it that way. But on a specific question, they will go the opposite way. Hey, by the way, I want to just interject here, Howard, because I want to cycle back to Obamacare for a minute. Yes, now, let's do that. I, I, I run, I've run large and small businesses. I'm on both sides of the aisle. Um, clearly, the men's warehouse, we have you know, 18,000, 19,000 employees, and in Seven Oaks Ranch, we have fewer than 20. So I'm, I'm really 
straddling both ends of the spectrum. And I got to tell you, I was ecstatic. Every single employer who has Blue Anthem Blue Cross in the state of California this year got a check back, me included, which I then split with my employees, by the way, because part of Obamacare says, and this is in the small business, I got that check back. Uh, Obamacare says if you spend more than I believe it's twenty percent, twenty or twenty-five percent of the total premium dollar on anything but benefits, you got to give that back because you overcharge too much for administration. And just to let you know, Medicaid does this on 5%. So having 20% is four times less efficient than the government's own Medicaid status. But in that check I got, which I then informed my employees why I got it, they were shocked to hear that Obamacare was the reason I got that check. And it turns out, and Frank, you know the number nationally, how much was returned under Obamacare this year in checks like that across the country? $1.1 billion. Correct. And I want to add that the savings, which has been calculated by independent sources now, in the first year of Obamacare, the big, big savings don't click in for another year or two, is already in excess of $1 billion more. So the savings to date, and that, that second billion, by the way, came in, if you look at the reduction of the increase of the inflation rate of, of medical services that Obamacare has put a lid on, and if you look at the, um, the amount of money that is now going into the system because people who had pre-existing conditions couldn't get insurance, and now they can, and they're adding to the pool, it turns out, by independent assessment, Obamacare has returned to the American public somewhere between two and two and a half billion dollars of benefits in its first year. Nobody knows that. Nobody yeah, it knows. was it was a, it was a, the problem with the marketing of uh, of Obamacare was that uh, the benefits were going to roll out slowly, uh, and that when seniors got that first two hundred dollar, two hundred fifty dollar check, uh, if they got into the donut hole, there wasn't a little label on that said uh, thanks to Obamacare. Uh, when you know, so when whenever there is some type of benefit that comes out because of Obamacare, there's never a tagline, uh, and, and that's that's unfortunate, and that's why people and, and small businesses, a lot of it, they don't pay attention, they don't know that they are already uh, accruing the benefits that are coming from Obamacare, uh, so that's why they're easily confused and and um, by people like the NFIB when they say, oh, Obamacare is bad. Yeah, the front group. So now, just for the heck of it, list a couple other benefits, Frank, of Obamacare, as you see them on behalf of small business. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, right now we have hundreds of thousands of small businesses right now in this country taking advantage of the health insurance tax credits. Uh, first time, the first time the country's ever given a tax credit to a small business for offering health insurance to their employees. Hundreds of thousands of them are taking advantage of it uh, this year. They, they also last year went into effect uh, – uh, last year, actually in 2010. Uh, that, that's one thing. Uh, we know that people who would like to be self-employed, uh, but they're tied to their business because they, they can't afford health insurance on their own. Maybe they can't even get health insurance if they're not with that big employer because they have a pre-existing condition. Uh, pretty soon in 2014, that goes away because in 2014, we will have a, a scenario where anybody, regardless of their health, will be able to go into these insurance exchanges uh, to get health insurance, and they cannot be penalized for a pre-existing condition. That is that is such an important uh, part of growing our small business community. Well, and uh, I want to that, report that, just to me interject here, Frank, because I, I, uh, another company I'm involved with has, a, has an employee with a pre-existing, and they've already noticed that the insurance company's conversation has changed because they know they're staring down this 2014 date. And I think people who had who are getting routinely bounced on coverage are now starting to get coverage, and of course by 2014 they can't be denied. So that's already starting to happen, as well as 
the people who can now leave us a business of any size and not worry if their insurance will be cut off if they go somewhere else. It's a huge benefit. It, it frees up the, the mobility of labor, which is one of the number one things that increases labor productivity for an economy. Um, I, I, I just So between the refunds that we're all getting and the cap itself has already started to cut. In other words, insurance companies now know that since they can't go above that cap or they've got to give it back, it's reining in this incredible excess that was going on. If you look at the projection line of where insurance premiums are this year, not last year, this year, compared to the projection line of the five years prior, you will see that it's dramatically flattening up. That's Obamacare. Premiums are coming down already. Uh, Absolutely. You're, you're absolutely right. You know, let me say one other thing that hasn't gone into effect, and this is going to be a big fight in many states. Uh, it is a Medicaid expansion. Uh, Obamacare originally uh, said that we were going to expand Medicaid up to people waking 138% of the federal poverty level. And, of course, the Supreme Court said, no, that's an option. The states don't have to do that. Uh, well, it is going to be essential for the states to do that because, one, they're using federal dollars for the first several years to pay for the whole thing. And then By the way, we should just, just people know, 100% of the cost, I believe, in the first year is federal, uh, isn't it? First, first three years. First three years, yeah. yeah and, then, and after that, it just ratchets it down slowly so that the state would pay no more than 10% of that additional cost. And let me tell you why that's important. A lot of small business people may say, well, what do I care? Well, you care because the whole purpose of health care reform was to get everybody with some type of health insurance. And if you let uh, all these uh, millions of people not get health insurance, then you're not going to help reduce your insurance premiums because there will still be this upward pressure on insurance premiums that you are paying for the uncompensated care of others. That's okay, let, me, one okay, let, me, let me just drill into that because this came up, and if you recall, it came up uh, in the Romney campaign recently. This is, this is one of the prevarications that just really tweaks me so badly. What basically Romney said is, Go to the emergency rooms if you don't have health care. Those 50 million people without insurance, 50 million in America. That is unheard of in any Western industrialized society except here that that would occur. But the problem is, and this is what Frank is saying, I just want to focus on it. When you send someone to an, ins- an emergency room as their primary health care source, you're spending four to 500% more for that same benefit than you would pay if they were covered in an insurance program. That higher cost gets baked into your premium dollars, folks. So you're actually, if you want to know, do not ask for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. Okay? Absolutely. When, when someone goes into that emergency room, it's costing you. We've got to get them out of those emergency rooms. We gotta get, if, nobody should have an emergency room be their primary caregiver, and that's what 50 million people have, and that drives up the premiums. That you, alone. Let me ask you the obvious question here is, why don't we know this? Why doesn't the, isn't the public <laughs> and the media reporting this and, and getting this information back out? Excuse me, back out to the American public. Why are we in the dark on something so big and so impactful? Those of us uh, who understand it and who have been trying to speak uh, do not have the mouthpiece that the private, the, the, the right-wing uh, folks have. I mean, they have their all of their radio shows, personalities, the, the big Fox News, uh, and and they cowl. The, the mainstream media into staying away from issues because they're, they're maybe too controversial or the reporters don't understand and they don't want to take the time to understand. Uh, so they have a great media outlet, and that's why voices such as, as mine and yours are hard to get out there to overcome all this neg- negativity. And let me say one other point about the Medicaid expansion, why it's important to small businesses. Medicaid expansion is going to be providing health insurance to the working poor. And who do you think those working poor work for? 
They work for small businesses. So if a small business owner wants to provide health insurance to his, his or her employees, right now they have to offer to all of them. If we can peel off uh, a certain a percentage of these working poor and give them Medicaid, then the employer then has actually more ability to offer health insurance to the remaining employees. I, I, I would just want to... Yeah, I just I want to stop. If there's one thing that I would like every listener when they pick up this MP3 file, about a 90% of our audience, Frank, picks this show up as an MP3 file. When you pick up that file this week, I want you to go back and play back what Frank just said. That is so vital to small business. I deal with this in all kinds of little companies. If you want to give insurance, which we always have in every small business I've ever owned in my life, I've always provided health care coverage. Well, to do that, is really expensive when you don't have Medicaid peeling off the most difficult cases. So what Frank just said is absolutely going to unleash, I'm going to say 10 to 20% of the total productive capacity of small business country will be unleashed because of Obamacare. And when you assume that the entire health care industry is 16% of the total GDP, we're talking about a spring-loaded recovery in 2013 as more and more of the Obamacare benefits kick in, and by 2014 we'll really be rolling. That's how important this is to everybody's pocketbook. So please go back and replay what Frank just said. Frank, we're, we're actually over our time, so I just want to give you one shot. I was fabulously impressed with the statement you gave on April 21 of 2010 when you were talking about uh, the credit situation, why we need Frank Dodd, um, how small the community banks were getting hurt and they did nothing wrong and the, and the too-big-to-fail got consolidated and bigger. And so I, I know that access to capital for small business is one of the things that, You've talked about eloquently. I don't want to box you, though. Uh, what, besides, if you want to talk about that, great. Or what other issue would you like to talk about in our remaining few moments that you think is something small business needs to know about and our listeners should hear about? Well, access to capital is important. It is one of the, the top issues of why small businesses cannot grow right now. They cannot get their traditional loans from the banks or lines of credit. Uh, that has got to be freed up. And, and don't blame Dodd-Frank for that. Uh, blame blame uh, the, the financial institutions themselves for, for changing the rules of, the, of their rules of the game of how they make credit. Uh, but let me just say one last thing about this is more of a generic uh, issue. And this goes to the, the, the role of our government, our federal government, of investing in the growth of our economy. Uh, so when, when you hear talk about, well, we'll do infrastructure and first responders uh, and all those things that federal government money goes into, uh, all that translates into money on Main Street. And so when you, when you hear people say, oh, no, we can't, we can't raise the taxes on somebody who's, who's making a million dollars, my goodness, uh, they may not hire somebody. Uh, yes, we can and we need to do that. We, yeah, well, we and by the way, Frank, you just got to know, we've talked about this. We believe this whole thing about, and, and by the way, I'm a, I'm a one, two percenter myself, okay? So when I say that we should tax the one, I'm saying we should tax me. I agree with Obama. He's one of them, too. He's one of us. And the reason is it will not change my lifestyle one iota. One iota. I can pay two or three more points. It won't affect me. I should be paying more. Why am I paying less now than I was in the Clinton years? The country needs money for infrastructure. 53% of the bridges are unsafe to drive on. We have the worst railroad system in the industrial world. We used to have the best in 1880. What happened? Uh, I, uh, the fact that we don't have first responders and policemen and teachers when we can afford it and we should afford it. So I always say to people, this is completely nuts, and this whole deficit idea is crazy. We don't create deficits by putting people to work. We eliminate deficits by putting people to work. And, yes, the government needs to borrow from itself, by the way, which the Fed is now doing. Eighty-five percent of the money the government borrows, it borrows from itself, just to put it in context. 
So we need to put those people to work. We need to create that infrastructure, and that will also create a 10 to 20% spring load effect on the U.S. GDP. People don't get that. The way we lowered the largest deficit in the history of the United States was in 1946 after World War II. We didn't pay the deficit down. We dramatically expanded the economy, and the deficit plummeted as a percentage of GDP, which it will do again if the Republican obstructionism will just get the heck out of the way. The economy is spring-loaded right now. One last I, thing before we go. Can we do this? Uh, one last thing. When sure. Next time they hear people talk about the, this, uh, this accounting study uh, that was done uh, that says we're going to lose 700,000 jobs if we, if we allow the, the Bush-era tax cuts to uh, revert to where they, under the Clinton administration, uh, don't believe it. It was a study paid for by the NFIB and the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, and I've looked at the study, and it is full of holes. Yeah, and it's, and it's funded by basically Crossroads GPS, Carl Rove, the Koch brothers, and what's happening, and I just, I'll end on this because I think Frank said something is really vital. When you control the megaphone, it's easy for people listening to think you know what you're saying and you're telling the truth. But I want to remind people, that's part of the big lie technique. Say a lie often enough, long enough, and loud enough with enough money behind it so you can replicate it. And people begin to believe it even when it's not true. The key thing we can do right now is if you're even remotely interested in small business in your best interest, Look up the ASBC. The Academy is proud to be a partner sponsor of it. I'm proud to have uh, one of my companies, an organic food company, as a member of it. And I'm really proud of Frank, who's down in South Carolina, no bastion of liberalism. Is, uh, and by the way, we're, we're, not, uh, we're not Democrats on this show. We're not Republicans. We're totally independent, have been for many, many years. But we call them as we see them. And, Frank, I want to just thank you publicly for what you've done at ASBC and in South Carolina. You're the kind of voice we need for small business. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ronaldo, and thank you, Howard. Thank you very much for being on the show today. It's been a pleasure listening to you, and uh, hopefully we'll have you on the show again in the future. That, uh, Ronaldo, it's time for us to segue into our lightning round, which, as always, is a series of quick insights and comments on various asset classes, such as bonds, equities, gold, and real estate. Again, today our emphasis is going to be some quick hits on gold, dividend stocks, and residential and commercial realty. Ronaldo, take it away. Great, and then we're going to segue into financial literacy after that, Howard? Yes, we will. Good, okay. So uh, gold, as we've been saying on the show correctly, it would appear for the last many months. Hold, uh, if in fact economy starts to start roaring, inflationary pressures could price the, push the price of gold up. Conversely, uh, if the, uh, the, the stalemate in Washington continues to clamp down, we could have a fiscal cliff. I don't think it'll happen. I think it's going to get kicked down the road, but if we do... That could push gold up. Uh, conversely, if we have a what the Fed is trying to do, which is to engineer an expansion of the monetary system, coincidentally with an expansion of the economy with a moderated inflation rate, then the price of gold will go down. So we we are we say if you got it, hold it. If you don't have it, it's too late to buy it in this cycle right now. Stay tuned to the show. We'll update you again next month. This is one that's going to stay volatile, but so far our call on this to hold has been the correct one. Number two on. Um, Dividend stocks. Uh, div- dividend stocks. Uh, you know, um, I, we started talking about dividend stocks, I don't know, four or five months ago at least, I think, Howard, and I'm delighted that the popular press is starting to talk about it too now. Um, here's, what, here's what you should have as a rule of thumb, folks, is a dividend stock. A dividend stock is a stock that's relatively solid for other reasons, but that's paying 2% of the cost of the stock or more as a dividend, as an annual dividend, because that means you don't have to sell the stock to make a profit. You can do what your grandparents did. Buy a stock, put it in the vault, and forget about it. Now, we are big believers in dividends. In fact, this show, and 
is where we agree with the Republicans, by the way. We believe in eliminating the double taxation of dividends. We think that once the dividend, that the dividend should be on the same basis as the payment of a debt instrument. So if you get a deduction for an interest payment to a bank, you should get a deduction for paying cash to your shareholders. Same deduction. That way you take the bias for debt out of the economy and you put it into a bias, you, you, you even the playing field. Having said that, dividend stocks have come into their own in the last six to nine months. Uh, and because of that, the stocks that we recommended to you many, many months ago that were good dividend payers continue to go up in value. So there's a capital gain effect as well as a nice 2% payout. And 2% or more, and in a world where you can't get 1% on a CD, is a good return. And to give you some idea, uh, Johnson & Johnson is uh, up in the 3% category and above. I'm happy to report men's warehouses in the 2% category and above. So I think there are a lot of places you can go to get extremely solid companies, get their stocks, you can get them for the dividend, and those stocks will continue to appreciate. My only caution is this. Don't buy a high-dividend stock which otherwise has weak fundamentals. If anybody wants to know what weak fundamentals would mean, Send us a question. We'll cover it in a subsequent show. But and let me reemphasize that as well, that, that yes, you want to look at dividend stocks, but again, you always have to look at the underlying stock itself and see whether that company at that price is, in fact, an appropriate buy. Um, it doesn't just mean willy-nilly go buy dividend stocks. That's right. It, 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 but but you know, when you've got a company like J&J paying 3%, for example, Johnson Johnson, yeah, companies like Men's Warehouse at 2%, and, and there's many, many others. I don't want to single those out. I'm just saying that that's... The range you want to be in is 1.75% and above, preferably a two and a quarter, because that means you're getting a much better yield than you get with your money in the bank, and you're not buying the stock to churn it. You're not, you're not participating in the casino-like aspect of all, the vast majority of all the players there, where they're buying it just to sell it. And by the way, volatility in the market, we're not going to talk about this today, but Howard, I think we should put it on financial literacy for an upcoming show. I want to talk about program training, the volatility, and why it's time for us to re-examine that and maybe put a halt to this. And, and, and the best way to do it, by the way, would be a small transaction tax. I think that we, we've talked about that in passing years ago, and we're, we, we, I know we brought it up again about a year ago. It's time for us to look at that. Other countries do it. It would decrease volatility. It would make the stock market safer. It would make it easier for people to invest their life savings there. And it would be the best thing in the world for the market. So we can talk about that in a subsequent show. That's certainly a fascinating discussion to hear the pros and cons of that issue. It's uh, definitely one that uh, has a lot of implications down the road if it's, in, if it's put into place. Huge, huge implications, and not just for revenue raising, but also for changing the complexion of the market itself and getting some of the casino-like aspects out of Wall Street. Okay, last one is real estate, commercial and residential. Uh, for those who have been listening to the show, you know we called this, fortunately we were right, we called the residential market exactly right. We told you that about three months ago it was bottoming out, starting to go up. Two months ago we told you it was on the upswing and would continue up. Last month we reiterated that's true. Happy to say all of the data now, no, no exceptions, all the data has come in that that is true. Residential real estate in the United States has rebounded, and it's continuing its upward rebound. You will continue to see an increase in the value of that real estate, which means the wealth effect, i.e. what people perceive their wealth to be, will continue to increase because now – the homes that they live in are growing. And here's another side benefit, folks. Fewer foreclosures and fewer people who are now underwater on their mortgage. And that will get better and better and better every single month from here on out, uh, assuming Obama's reelected. Yeah, all bets are off if he's not. And that also assumes, as you know me, I've said in the prior show, uh, the, the Democrats hold the Senate at least, because then you'll see a continuation of these policies which are generating these positive outcomes from the depth of the worst recession since the Great Depression. Um, 
Those uh, commercial, though, I've warned people about commercial real estate. I want to reiterate the warning. It's not yet time for commercial real estate. Uh, right now, people who are bargain hunters, who um, who are uh, risk takers, capital risk takers, which is good, we need them, um, are able to pick up some incredible deals in commercial real estate in the hopes that the demand for commercial real estate will rise in the future. It has not risen yet. Um, and the way you, you track commercial real estate, ladies and gentlemen, is a couple of ways. Number one, you look at occupancy rates for offices in major metropolitan areas. And you overlay that against the growth curves in those areas. And we're not at the place yet where we're pushing enough new businesses into those office spaces that, in fact, we can see the demand. However, we'll come back to this in a second, when you see the unemployment statistics growing, when you, when you, when you consider the spring-loading effect of how good Obamacare is going to be, is and already is and going to continue to be for the economy, the spring-loaded effect of the housing increases, spring-loaded effect of the reduction of the unemployment, all of those things are going to create upward pressure. So I'm going to go out on a limb here and say, my guess is within the next 60 days, we will have bottomed out in the commercial real estate market if we haven't done so already, and you'll start to see a climb. We're that close to commercial real estate coming back. So again, if we get through this election safely and we continue the policies and hopefully even improve them, which would include you know, having some more infrastructure demand, then uh, I think we're going to be seeing uh, the, re- the rebirth of commercial real estate. That's Very the good. lightning round. I just want to throw in one quick thing, too. Uh, we've talked very frequently about the price of oil, and I have for years been saying that I've always noticed that the price of a barrel of oil tends to go down before the congressional and presidential election cycles. And I mentioned last month I was going to predict that oil would be down close to 90 um, before the election, and right now we are down at about $89 a barrel. Uh, Congratulations, Howard. By the way, but, I want to... But conversely... Gas at the pump in California right. has skyrocketed, which I would throw out, again, with no particular evidence behind it. I have a suspicion is another manipulation uh, to sabotage California being a democratic state uh, by the oil industry and to further their interests here. Just a guess. Um, well, let's, let, let, let's, 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 let's unpack that. I mean, please, clearly please. greed knows no boundaries. Thought. Well, greed knows no boundaries when it comes to the oil companies, and, and they'll take all they can take as much as they can take whenever they can take it. I think your theory has been proven correct on the price of the barrel of oil. Uh, as what's happened in California, I think, Howard, and, and just to give people some idea, if you didn't notice, this week alone, in a number of major markets in California, the price of gasoline went up by over 35 cents a gallon. That's a more than that. It's in some cases up a dollar to two dollars a gallon. Now, I, I haven't seen that personally, but I've seen. Thirty-five. I've seen forty and forty-two. We're seeing prices over five sixty a gallon. Yeah. We're seeing yeah. a lot of independents being squeezed out, as opposed to the uh, gas stations belonging to the majors, to the point where even uh, Costco, some of their stations have stopped selling gas. They're simply out. Yeah. So and here's what's happening. The, the 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 way it's occurring, as far as I can tell, we did have a refinery disruption, uh, and that refinery disruption put a minor kink in supplies. What the oil companies correctly calculated is that people would not stop driving fast enough, dramatically reduce consumption, so that while there was a possibility of reduced supplies in California, because we, we, we actually, in California, we have to, uh, our gas is slightly uh, formulated differently because we have higher air quality standards in many of the states in the country, and therefore, when you have a refinery issue in California, you end up with uh, a significant uh, market disruption in the local market in California. However, here's what I want to predict. These prices won't stick. 
the American public, A, has gotten too smart. B, I want to point out, if you even noticed, didn't notice it, folks, last month was the best month for automobile sales for years from pre-recession levels now. And what happened was those cars that rolled off the lot this last month at an all-time high nationwide, but also in California, those cars have dramatically higher fuel standards than the cars they replaced. Now, here's a statistic you'll like. I've been asking people in the show, just drive 5% less and you'll see what it does to lower the price of gas. Well, we've actually done a pretty good job nationwide. We're down about 2-3% in consumption. However, that's not enough. What people in California have to do, and they've got to do it immediately, they've got to show the oil companies that they're paying attention, that when the oil companies get extra greedy, like they are right now, we can slow our consumption of gas by 5 to 10% overnight. Because that's what they are, they're counting on that we can't do. How do you slow your consumption by 5 to 10% overnight if you can't go out and buy a new car that's 5 to 10% more efficient? Okay, several ways. Consolidate some of your trips. I, it, we've gotten so used to jumping in our car and going to go get anything, we don't look at the cost of getting there. At the price of gas today, we ought to be looking at that cost. Secondly, carpooling whenever possible. Far more fun, actually, and, and, it, and it works. Number three, public transit. Number four, do you, and this is the one I love the best, do you really have to go? In other words, do you really have to go? Or is it something that you could give up for a week or two not doing just to put downward pressure on the consumption of fuel? And that would include, frankly, a day at the beach. Fortunately, it's October, so the day at the beach is less desirable. But I'm, you, know, you don't have to walk at the seashore today or this weekend. Walk in your neighborhood. In other words, can you take a bicycle and ride somewhere? Can you come up with a plan for this weekend? You say, you know what, I'm going to reduce what I would have done driving this weekend by 10%. Now, it's interesting I- to note, Ronaldo, that uh, recently in Los Angeles they had Carmageddon 2, but they simply asked people to stay off the 405 freeway, uh, a 10-mile stretch. That freeway stretch contains two of the single busiest commuter intersections in the world on a daily basis, and Los Angeles complied, and there were no traffic jams. People are able to adjust their driving when they need to on a short-term basis, and Carmageddon 1 and Carmageddon 2 are absolute proof that that can happen. By the way, if you didn't notice, absolutely correct, Howard, uh, if you didn't notice, folks, the companies who sold the most cars last month were the companies like Honda, Toyota came roaring back, Fiat, which is selling under the America, under the uh, Chrysler label now, is selling a ton of those little Fiat 500s. Uh, and so the, the smaller car market really, really has come on strong. So people are responding. But, but, but I really want to urge you, I want, I want you to think, if you look at a typical weekend, can you take 10% of what you would have driven this weekend and eliminate it? If you can, that's pretty exciting because if a bunch of us do that, this price will come collapsing down and here's how you'll know folks here's how you'll know watch the price at the independent station as soon as the major oil companies realize that you've slowed down your driving the first thing they do is they cut the cost to the independents Costco will start pumping again the independent stations will start pumping again and they'll be pumping it substantially below the cost of exxon mobile of shell of standard oil and that'll go on until the majors decide how much they're going to bleed out to the independent market before they can equalize the prices. So don't buy from a major at all until the prices come down, but watch the independents, and what you're going to find is the price break is going to happen there first because that's where they go to get rid of their excess capacity. Let Join me this weekend. I'm going to reduce mine 10%. It's harder for me to do, by the way, because I have a Prius. 
So to, t- to cut 10% of my consumption of gas is not easy. But I can, cut, I can cut 10% of my trips, and I'm going to do that this weekend. Okay, uh, Howard. Um, Let's move on to financial literacy. Uh, we are getting a little short on time. Uh, so, Ronaldo, again, we want to talk about uh, SRI investing, and we wanted to talk about Mindy Luber and series and the series principle, that C-E-R-E-S. Yeah, let's, let's, let's real quickly because we're short on time. Socially responsible investing, SRI, has been around with us for a little more than two decades. There are a couple of people who can legitimately claim have started this industry. One of them is Hazel Henderson, my dear friend and member of the Academy for many years. Hazel really came up with the idea, along with another dear friend of mine, Wayne Silby at the Calvert Group, of creating a screen for those companies that you should avoid when you invest, and in return for which, using that screen, hopefully you won't be stuck when things go wrong. An example right now in the screens uh, is don't invest in nuclear. And so because SRI mutual funds and investment funds don't invest in nuclear, as the prices of nuclear companies continue to cascade down, and you're looking at things like San Onofre being closed, General Electric has left the nuclear industry completely, they've announced on July 30th, um, Siemens has left the nuclear industry. They announced that last uh, September. So as the industry continues to, and, and by the way, you will never see another nuclear power plant built, I believe, in the United States of America. I don't believe San Onofre will, re, will reopen on by December 1. And everybody who listens to this radio show, December 1 is a key date. On December 1, technically speaking, if San Onofre does not open, that, which I don't think it will, it will have been offline for nine months. When you're offline for nine months in the state of California, the PUC has the authority to remove that entire plant from the rate base until it goes back online. Do you know what that will do to the stock of Southern California Edison? Think about it. And what does it do to the stock of, of nuclear companies? Because they're now they, they, they're in full flight. So if you're an SRI company, and you, by definition you didn't have nuclear in your portfolio, as nuclear gets hit like it's getting hit and should get hit, you don't suffer. So that's why SRI mutual funds – and we're going to talk about that in a second. But SRI mutual funds historically have outperformed the S&P 500 for more than 20 years, meaning they produce a better return for their investors. Now, people like Howard and myself don't necessarily recommend loaded funds. We like no-load funds. Uh, there are certain kinds of SRI funds which are, uh, I think, better targeted than others. Uh, some of them basically, and Howard knows this, are they are masquerading as SRI but really are – basically high-tech and medical companies that they invest in. But, but, but the general you know, like, principle of social like responsible investing is to avoid those parts of society that are doing poorly. And now, and this is the new thing, this is where Mindy Luber comes in, now they're taking and saying that they're going to start investing in what they want more, which is alternative energy. So they're going to get more on the cutting edge of where the, un- where the, where the universe of money is going rather than investing in the technologies like coal and nuclear, which are dying. So that's what socially responsible investing is about, putting your money where your values are and trying to pr- get as good or better return than you can anywhere else in the marketplace. Yeah, how I would just stress, as, as an advisor who obviously buys and sells funds and stocks all the time, that you definitely need to thoroughly investigate perhaps your SRI funds or, or things that market themselves in that way, perhaps even more than traditional, because there's a lot of attempts to pull the wool over people's eyes by labeling things as socially responsible. In fact, they may not be. It takes extreme caution to do this, and you really have to be careful and don't jump at the first um, the first ad that pulls your eye in, so to speak. And every fund, so if you take what is the Calvert Group, the Dominic Group, PAX, 
well, there's a series of these fund groups, fund, F-U-N-D. They have within them different profiles of different types of SRI investing. So it's not like you go, okay, I'll pull a lever for SRI and I've done my homework. No, you got to figure out who's got the return you want to see, what's the type of fund that most uh, most aligns with your social uh, decisions, like what you want to see money invested in. And your financial condition. And your financial that's, also, that's actually the starting point. Actually, no, I think, I, you know, Howard, I take a different thing. I think you start with what you believe is the right thing to do, and then you go find the way to make money doing it. So I always put the social benefit before the profit motive, and I, and I believe I can make a strong case that the profit will be better if you do it that way. And, well, and, and you will be happy for having done it. Right. But if you make an inappropriate investment for your own lifestyle, it doesn't matter what it's in. It can be the wrong investment. All we're yeah, saying totally, is use caution. Totally. Always, always use caution with all these comments. Um, We're down to our last 10 minutes here, and we have for our second topic, really, it's a grab bag of a number of uh, ideas that we wanted to mention before the election, one of which is the hydrogen economy. We have election updates. We have insurance and casualty claims related to climate change. Where would you like to start on those? Okay, let's – first of all, um, all of this to me is an election update. Obviously, I don't need to repeat this. Romney did very, very well in debate against the president. People he say he, quote, won, close quote. And what that means is he outperformed. That, so when you say you won the debate, that's a television term. It also means, I think, he influenced more people positively, which is a substantive term. Unfortunately, he did it by articulating a series of prevarications and distortions and, frankly, outright lies. For him to say that he's not seeking a $5 trillion tax cut, that's a lie. That's what he's been running on for a year. For him to say he doesn't know about offshore benefits, that was insane for companies who go offshore. Of course he does. He's been taking advantage of all of his professional career. I mean, I could go on and on. Uh, he would say, let me finish. He would say that the Obamacare would add $2,500 to the average person's bill. is a complete lie. And he knows What he tried it. to do, what I found interesting, was a complete philosophic switch by accusing Obama of trickle-down economic theory which is the policy of the Republican Party. And it's somehow that if he threw it and labeled Obama with this negative, pejoristic uh, comment, that somehow people would buy that. I found that... And by the way, he tried to create a new term. He tried to create a term called trickle-down government to take the sting out of trickle-down economics. Trickle-down economics for 30 years has meant the idea that if you tax less than the rich, they will, quote, be job creators, close quote, who will create more jobs below. It's been completely proven by every independent study anywhere in the United States over a 25-year period, and conclusively demonstrated by George Bush because of the recession he put us into, trickle-down doesn't work. Clinton economics works. As Clinton said himself, just do the arithmetic. I mean, we're talking, ladies and gentlemen, about going from 36 to 39% if you make over a million dollars a year. That is not going to hurt. And, in fact, we have to pay for what we want, which is to put people back to work, fix those bridges, get those railroads working, build the infrastructure. You know, there's a report I saw just two days ago. Do you know that more than half the telephone poles in Florida are past their useful life, and they're falling over? One of them fell over on a worker. He's now a paraplegic for the rest of his life. So it's, it's like we haven't even been replacing telephone poles, and they're made out of wood, for God's sakes. We, folks, we've got to start rebuilding the country. We've, we've ignored it. We've been coasting on what our, the prior generation did for us. So the election update is this. We just got the 7.0% unemployment. That's real. We've created over 5.2 million jobs since Obama took office. We just had the first month where the unemployment numbers are lower now than they were when he took office. He took office, 850,000 people lost their jobs then. 
as a monk. Now, we crawled out of such an enormous hole. Did we crawl out fast enough? No, we did not. And I personally believe that 90% of the reason we're crawling so slow is because of Republican obstructionism in Congress, because they wouldn't pass the second stimulus bill for $500 billion. And by the way, for people who say stimulus doesn't work, they should look at the numbers. When the stimulus bill we did pass ran out about a year ago, as I said in the last show, that's when the unemployment numbers started going up again. Now, do we have to keep stimulating indefinitely? No. What Krugman, Stieglitz, and myself have been saying for years, look, all you had to do was to do the, the this first 750 was the down payment. You needed to do 500 to 750 more, and you'd have been done. And you'd have gotten that money back in a very short period of time because of the growth of the economy. So the election update is, may stay the course right now. Don't change this from the antidote to trickle-down economics, which occurred in the, in the Bush area. Don't make that decision at the polls in November to, to throw out the Obama recovery and take us back into a cataclysmic decline. Because, folks, if you thought 2008 was bad, you won't believe what's going to happen in 2013 if the, if the Obama recovery does not continue. If Obama's Medicare plan is canceled alone, will stick us back into a deep recession. If there's a $5 trillion tax cut for the top 2%, that'll put us into a deeper recession. I mean, it's, it, there's so many places this is flawed, I can't believe it. And to say that we're going to increase our military budgets, as Romney did the other night, in the face of the fact that we've just ended one war and are about to end the second one, is unconscionable. It's so, it, it's so cravenly opportunistic. I think it's and an he, appeal to knee-jerk patriotism as, a, as opposed to, like, thinking. Exactly. Exactly. So, folks, you've got to do your homework. Okay? Let me just talk about insurance claims for a second. Because, you know, we are very, very good. One of the Academy's great areas of expertise is climate change. Last year, and there was a great report by Ceres. In fact, this year. It came out on September of 2012. It just came out last month. Stormy free future for U.S. property casual insurers, colon, the growing costs and risks of extreme weather events. Let me tell you what they concluded, folks. Last year, this is now in a publicly accepted number, $32 billion was spent directly repairing with insurance repairing the damage from extreme weather events. Not from normal stuff, from extreme weather events. That is a shocking number to the insurance industry. And what Ceres is saying, and what the insurance commissioner uh, for the um, state of Washington, Mike Krieger, said in the forward to the report, people need to realize that, quote, extreme weather is hitting the United States with a vengeance, and it poses a growing threat to the insurance industry and vast segments of society that rely on insurance for peace of mind and financial security i.e., we're going to bankrupt the system, folks. $32 billion last year, get ready. It's going to be much worse next year. And there's nothing we can do today to stop it. But what we need to be insurance aware of it. continue to go up because the insurance industry always tries to find a way to keep their books balanced. Exactly. And so what you're going to see, folks, is we don't address this climate change issue head on, that $32 billion is the, just the smallest little down payment. You're going to be seeing trillions of insurance disruptions. Not billions, trillions. Mark my words. Now that we're down to our last three, four minutes, uh, do you want to hit on hydrogen economy? You want to Real hold quick, that off? I, I would love to. You know, I was so glad, and for those of you who get the uh, Academy's newsletter, Currents and Commerce, you saw that we, uh, on page six, we talked about this report by the Department of Energy on hydrogen. And I'm just going to summarize very quickly, but it, it was a major report. It finally concluded, as we've been saying for a while, hydrogen is the one fuel source, which is also the ideal battery, the way you store electricity from wind as the Germans now have concluded. It's the way you store it from photovoltaic when the sun's not shining. It's how you store it from geothermal. So taking renewable energy and turning it into hydrogen is the way to power the economy. Ladies and gentlemen, if we don't get this, if we don't just 
destroy the planet through climate change and through mis misdirected government actions like trickle-down economics, what you will find is within 20 years or less, we will have begun a significant transition to the hydrogen economy. Um, let me give you some stats real quickly. Global sales of fuel cells, which use a chemical process to draw power from hydrogen, have more than tripled since 2008. We now do 74 megawatts. Last year, it's going to be well over 100-plus by next year. Uh, two new independent studies have indicated the incredible importance of hydrogen as a way to balance the grid so you can stop building the grid. Uh, there's an increased interest in Europe in using hydrogen and fuel cells for grid-scale energy to avoid having to build the grid in the first place and tap wind and solar, as we've been saying on this show. Here's the last one. Global venture capital private equity investment in hydrogen has nearly quadrupled between 2010 and 2011, 400%. It's gone from $86 million to $325 million. Ladies and gentlemen, that's less than what Shell pays to drill one oil well in the Arctic, a fraction of what they pay. So even on a fraction of the investment for something as insane as drilling in the Arctic, by the way, as you know, some oil companies now come out and said it should never be done. Oil companies have said that. Well, for a fraction of that, we could do this conversion to the hydrogen economy, which will create more jobs than anything that's happened since the conversion from horsepower to the steam engine in the Industrial Revolution by a factor of 500%. Repeat, version as we go through it to the hydrogen economy will be a more significant wealth generator than the conversion from horsepower to the steam engine by a factor of at least 500%. So if the Industrial Revolution looked good to you, it's five times better when you get to the hydrogen economy. Please ask me more questions about it. I love talking about it. Go to our newsletter. Click on the link to the report from the DOE, Department of Energy. Uh, they're finally getting the message in Washington that this is something they can no longer ignore. And to me, it's one of the major infrastructure questions of our time. With that, Howard, I want to thank people for being patient with the amount of material we had to cover today. Before we sign off, off, Ronaldo, let me remind our listeners that if they'd like to place a question, uh, suggest a topic or a speaker for a future show, to please email us at info at worldbusiness.org or to follow us at the World Business site. That's Again, that's worldbusiness.org. And if you want to find uh, prior shows, you simply scroll down on the main page to Blog Talk Radio. You'll see Ronaldo's picture, and uh, just click on Radio Shows, and you can open up any of our past shows. Our and, next, and, and, our next show, first, Ronaldo, yep. will be November 8th, which is at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, which, again, is always the second Thursday of the month. And I want to just compliment on the air Mindy Luber, who I had the great privilege of speaking with publicly in a forum that was created at the Social Responsible Investors Conference we did a couple of days ago. She has been since 2003 the CEO of Siri. She's a doctor. She has a Juris Doctor. She's a lawyer. She has an MBA. She's the CEO of Series, which is C E R E S. And I want to urge all of you go to the Series website. Just look Google Series Principles, and I want you to see what the leading organization in the world is talking about when they talk about sustainability. To me, that's one of the hallmarks of what this show is about. What the Academy is about. I want to thank Mindy for being my guest in that conversation at SRI and for SRI to uh, holding it and hosting it. Uh, with that, I, I want to thank everybody for the amount of material we covered today, as I said, because Jefferson's right. If you don't do your homework, you won't like what you're going to get. Do inform yourselves. Get yourself a freedom of Remember and to vote. Off. Remember to vote. It's the most important thing. It is the duty, not the privilege. It is, it is a heck of a privilege, but it is your duty as a citizen to vote. Get out there and vote, and uh, hope what we'll see is a, a fun show in November celebrating what the future holds. Yeah, Ronaldo, I'd like to thank everybody for tuning in today, and to thank you and Frank as well.
and uh, look forward to catching you with next month. Thank you Thanks, and Dr. goodbye.